Welcome to this episode of the Dyson House podcast from the Australian Institute of International Affairs in Victoria. My name is Thenu, I'm your host, and today we will be focusing on the currently very volatile conflict between Israel and Palestine. Joining me today is Dr. Michelle Lesh, a visiting fellow at Melbourne Law School. Michelle completed her PhD on international humanitarian law and targeted killing before taking up a number of positions at international organisations. This included a role as a legal advisor to the Turkel Commission, Israel's national inquiry into alleged violations of international law. She also acted as a human rights officer for the UN Special Rapporteur on the Palestinian Occupied Territory. Hi, Michelle. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. Hi, Fenu. Thanks so much for having me. I'd like to begin by asking simply, what sparked your interest in the Israel and Palestine conflict? There's kind of a personal interest, I guess, and as well as a professional one. So on a personal level, uh, three of my grandparents escaped the Holocaust, but most of their families did not. They perished in the death camps. So when I started studying law, at an undergraduate level, my interest kind of gravitated towards the impact of the Second World War and the Nuremberg trials on international law and on the Geneva Conventions and the idea of the importance of the community of nations. And my maternal grandfather in particular, so he fled Europe um, and he made his way to the British mandate, Palestine. And when he was there, he joined what was then the pre-state army, the Haganah, and he met my grandmother there who was also a member and he fought in what was the 1948 war and he was part of the battle um, on the road of Jerusalem which was then under siege and I have, you know, very strong and fond memories of my grandfather who was a committed Zionist and believed in the idea of the necessity of a Jewish state, but he very much believed in the idea that you had to treat the Arab inhabitants justly. And this kind of, he shared a lot of stories with me about his experiences, particularly during that war in 1948. And I think that kind of played a formative role in my curiosity about international law and Israel-Palestine conflict and the way kind of laws connected to politics and um, history and love of country. Uh, and, yeah, my mother was born in Israel and she's nine generations Israeli and she has cousins who are 22 generations Israeli, so they came as far back as um, 1492 um, after the Spanish Inquisition. So I, I feel a sense that my roots are there in that region. So that's on a personal level. And in terms of career, I guess that influenced my career and I, I kind of um, took up, up opportunities to, to work there. So my passion was really ignited in, I think, 2006. I worked uh, as a foreign law clerk with the then Chief Justice of the Israeli Supreme Court, Aharon Barak, and I worked with him I was fortunate to work on the targeted killing judgment. And two years before that, while I was an undergraduate law student, uh, I took up the opportunity to study a, um, to do a study abroad program, and that allowed me to work uh, at Bet Selim, which is a leading human rights organisation in Israel. It's kind of the equivalent of an Amnesty International in that area where it reports on human rights violations, particularly in the occupied territories. 
And it was at the height of the Second Intifada, it was 2004. And as a law student, I was really curious and interested about the way law could respond adequately, morally and politically to this kind of complex asymmetrical conflict and specifically targeted killing. Because while I was at the organisation, it was the height of Israel's targeted killing program and they were the first kind of country in the world that was publicly admitting to killing these mainly higher-up leaders at the time of um, groups like Hamas and Fasha and the international community, different UN resolutions were condemning Israel for killing civilians. And while I was at this human rights organisation, there was a lot of debate within the organisation about whether the law is adequate. You know, should the woman walking down the street that gets killed in that attack, the innocent bystanders, we call it, be considered the same person under the law as potentially someone heavily involved in the conflict that kind of directs attacks and may not physically carry them out but may have strategically an important role. And while I was at that organisation, they felt like it wasn't their role as a human rights organisation to comment on the law but rather report on it. But for me, that kind of ignited this curiosity about how you make the law relevant to this complex asymmetrical conflict where on the one hand you have a powerful state and on the other hand you have an oppressed population and how the law deals with that because people fighting on one side aren't traditional soldiers um, that have an army and you know I continued to be in contact with um, that organisation Betselem when I worked in 2008 at the UN at the Commission of Inquiry that was into the border protests along the Gaza border, I contacted Betselem and also another um, Israeli organisation called Breaking the Silence, which is a group that collects testimonies from soldiers about what they did during their time in the territories. And I have kind of a relationship and with that organisation I've collaborated with them in different events about the importance of international law and the reason that I felt that it was important for the commission to be in contact with these kind of NGOs is because um, the fatality statistics and the facts that they produce which are really solid and reliable research I think is very important in terms of applying the law and that's what I found from my experience in, you know, those organisations that they take that role really seriously, that if we're going to criticise what a country does and their conduct in more, then we need to make sure that that information is accurate and reliable. And on the other side, working in the UN, I felt that they, you know, needed to, when they are applying the law and advising member states of the UN what their position should be on the Gaza um, border protests in this case, they need to make sure that all the inf- they have as much information as possible and that that information is as accurate as possible in terms of making legal conclusions. Even though you can see that like, what motivated me was this concern um, that Israel should be answerable to international law and for what its soldiers have done. I also, as well as working with um, NGOs like Betzelem um, have worked in Israel's 
justice ministry. And initially I was a bit reluctant. That seemed counterintuitive to me after working at Betselem at the UN with people like Richard Falk. Um, but I decided to do that in the end and work in the justice ministry, mainly because I was asked to by um, the Attorney General for International Law, Roy Shondoff, and I felt that what I knew about him um, made and my respect for him was what um, made me decide to work there. And I did find that working there on the inside that he had a concern for international law, that it wasn't this, you know, place where they were desperately trying to find legal loopholes to justify everything Israel did. And my hope was that because, you know, I took international law seriously that hopefully I would have at least a small impact from the inside. And I did find um, that working there, there were like-minded people. I think I would find it much more challenging um, today. It's a different environment. There's a lot of attacks on the judiciary. Um, that's not just happening in Israel. I mean, we see that, for example, in the United States. Um, but, yeah, there is that tension in terms of um, trying to make an influence from the inside and impacting international law when you have a government that doesn't necessarily um, take it as seriously as they should. You've just outlined what seems to be an incredibly diverse career. You've gone from working with NGOs to the UN to commissions from the Israeli government as well. Has your view of the conflict changed in going between these organisations? Um, I think that they all shaped it in different ways, but what it, it you know confirmed for me was just this idea of the the importance of international law and that we can't give up on it and that even when the situations are either too complex or, you know, there are all these obstacles, it's really important that, you know, the law stays, the law is there and we need to apply it. Obviously you get different perspectives when you're at an NGO or a UN or, um, within the government and also, you know, then academia where you have much more freedom to kind of express your own um, views personally, like in publications and things like that. But, yeah, what I, I found across the board was just how important international law is and especially with this conflict, which is it is quite um I know it's whenever you go into the details of any specific conflict, you're going to find complexities, but there are so many layers to this specific con conflict and also because of its asymmetrical nature that you do find that sometimes the law isn't quite that adequate. So I guess it also kind of nourished that interest in me about the relationship between politics, morality and law and how they all interact and how you make the law adequate to the different changing realities on the ground because we know we can't just change the law every time a new situation comes. The law, you know, it's too blunt an instrument to be able to do that. But at the same time, we really want to maintain its relevance because we want it to be applied. 
Before getting too much more into the specifics of the conflict, it's worth noting that Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu recently said he would begin to annex a third of the West Bank, which is currently occupied by Palestinians. For listeners who are not very familiar with the conflict, could you explain why this move is so significant? Yeah, as you rightly said, um, the plan is to um, annex what would amount to potentially 30% of the West Bank. It was following on from um, President Trump's um, announcement in January for their peace plan, which has kind of allowed Israel to do this. It's given its, its blessing. And what that would mean would would be pretty much the death of the idea of a two-state solution if Israel does annex that territory or even some of it, it would be very difficult for the Palestinians to create their own independent state because of the areas that Israel would take. Primarily their interest is the settlement blocks. So Israel has established civilian um, areas where Israeli citizens live in the occupied territories. So the main political significance is what it would do to the idea of a Palestinian state. Um, Legally, it's so significant because annexation is a flagrant violation of international law. Acquisition of territory by force is uncontroversially illegal. Um, it has been so since, you know, the second aftermath of the Second World War. It is, you know, prohibited by the UN Charter. That's been affirmed by the UN and by the International Court of Justice numerous times. That is why the Secretary General has, you know, a few weeks ago said annexation would be the most serious violation of international law. So if Israel were to go ahead with this, with the um, blessing of the Trump administration, it would um, demonstrate a complete disregard for international law because it would be, you know, taking something that is not theirs, that territory, the West Bank, as well as the Gaza Strip, which... um, you know, is a a bit of a different situation, but their territories that Israel occupied after the 1967 war, they've been occupying those territories for 53 years. In 2005, Israel unilaterally withdrew from Gaza and there is debate, you know, Israel's position is they no longer occupy it. There are others who take the position that they still occupy it even though they don't have boots on the ground because of the many other forms of control. But the idea of occupation, according to the law, is that it is temporary. It can occur in the context of a war, in the context of an armed conflict, but the idea is that that territory is ultimately returned to the inhabitants. And in this case, that's the Palestinians. And the Palestinians want to create their own state. They have a right to self-determination, which is being denied um, through the ongoing occupation and if there was an an annexation. And and that connects it to the settlements because um, building settlements on occupied territory is likewise considered illegal 
and that's connected to that that temporary nature of occupation means that you shouldn't be an occupying power is not allowed to change the demographics of that territory it's not theirs to do that that's not in their power so we have seen that for many years Israel has been disregarding international law in terms of the occupied territories but annexation takes that to a whole new level and as we know nothing has happened on the 1st of July um, which was um, when we were told the date where it would eventuate we don't know if it will still happen. So it's unclear whether uh, Israel will carry out an annexation, whether it will to the full extent it did, which was, as you mentioned, 30% of the West Bank, and that included the Jordan Valley, or whether it will do it in a more limited form with just some settlement block, or whether it will just try and postpone it. It's hard to read Prime Minister Netanyahu. He's someone who holds his cards close to him. What we do know about him is, you know, it's important for him to have a legacy um, and this would be a very significant legacy for him on the one hand that might, um, you know, really be a motivating factor for him to do some kind of annexation. On the other hand, he is known to be very risk averse. So the potential um, implications on relationships with Jordan and Egypt, for example, might be a concern to him. But we also know primarily he's motivated by his own political self-interest. And what he wants to do is make sure that he has a coalition and can hold on to power. So it's just unclear how to read that and what the dynamics are at the moment in the White House with Jared Kushner and President Trump and where things will unfold but we do know if there is an annexation, that means we don't know what will happen to those Palestinians whose land are annexed, whether they will be given any rights at all. Um, you know, the hope is that they would be given full citizenship and full rights, but we know that that um, is probably unlikely. From your experience working with the UN, do you believe that international organisations could do more to maintain peace and security in the region? Or does the inherent political nature of this conflict prevent them from doing so? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question. We do know that um, the United Nations, on the one hand, is an extremely important institution. Um, It does a lot of important um, and necessary work. We do know also that it's limited in the sense that um, politics is uh, at play that there's the veto power of the Security Council. You know, we've seen that most prominently in Syria. If we look at the region more broadly and the inaction to do with that ongoing uh, conflict. But at the same time, I think we need the UN more than ever when we have particularly attacks by liberal regimes and we see what's going on you know, in relation to this particular conflict, but in the world more generally, where I think we need international law more than ever. And so the UN does play an ongoing and important role. It might not be able to do everything that it wants to do, but 
on a smaller scale it is having an impact. I mean, we don't, we're still speculating whether anything will happen in terms of the annexation, but it could be that the response of the international community more generally, as well as the UN specifically, has scared Israel a bit into inaction. I mean, I think, I don't think we should be completely dismissive of the UN because it doesn't have, you know, the teeth that we want it to in 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 certain situations. It still has an important role. I think commissions of inquiry are important, I think, in terms of accountability and in terms of reporting violations that go on um, in different regions and different conflicts is extremely important. And a lot of that comes from resources and experts within the UN system. If the annexation goes ahead, it has been suggested that Palestine will strongly assert their sovereignty in retaliation. To what extent do you think that this will affect the current case before the International Criminal Court concerning Palestinian statehood? Yeah, that's also a really good question. So um, we know that at the moment, um, the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court, she's already conducted a preliminary examination which looks at conduct in the occupied Palestinian territories, and that includes Israeli conduct. Um, She finished that preliminary examination and is ready to um, initiate the next phase, which is called an investigation, where she kind of, the Office of the Prosecutor goes into more detail in terms of specific crimes um, and conduct. And we're actually waiting any day on a decision by the pre-trial chamber because the Office of the Prosecutor requested that before an investigation is initiated that they rule on jurisdiction and that involves a question on whether Palestine is considered a state. Um, So that decision will be handed down any day. That's what we're expecting. We know that on the 1st of May, the Office of the Prosecutor did file a a response in the context of that um, pre-trial chamber um, hearing and that that response was to different submissions that were made in relation to by different amicus curiae in relation to whether Palestine is a state. And in that response she did remind the pre-trial chamber that Israel has made clear its intention to annex the West Bank And while the prosecutor didn't directly connect that to a specific legal argument in relation to Palestinian statehood, it was a reminder that Israel has no intention to comply with international law. Um, And, of course, that related more generally to her argument because it's a denial of the right to self-determination, which was central to the prosecutor's conception of why Palestine should be considered a state under international law. More generally in terms of the kind of um, issues that um, the prosecutor will be investigating based on her um, previous reports, the annexation does relate directly to that. It relates to the different war crimes that the prosecutor intends to investigate specifically in relation to settlements and also in relation to expropriating property. So 
if anything, it would just be um, reaffirming um, the prosecutor's um, suspicion at this point because it hasn't been proven that there are uh, alleged violations of international law carried out by Israel in the West Bank and East Jerusalem in relation to settlement activity and expropriating property. But again, we won't know more until we know the ruling on jurisdiction. Where does Australia fit into all of this? Does our foreign policy adequately cover the Israel-Palestine conflict? I think if we're talking specifically um, in relation to Israel-Palestine conflict, we know that generally Australia's position has been quite supportive of Israel. We see that in its voting patterns at the UN. Uh, We saw that in relation to um, the current uh, proceedings at the International Criminal Court, Australia submitted an amicus curiae brief um, to the pretrial chamber supporting um, Israel's position that is, you know, against the prosecutor's position, which is that Palestine is a state. Australia argued that it's not a state under international law. What is interesting is that a few days ago, the foreign minister did release a statement in relation to annexation, expressing her concern, which, um, you know, is a small step. And she expressed her commitment to uh, a two-state solution. So that was one way of Australia saying, you know, that annexation isn't consistent with international law without going too far in terms of condemning Israel, that it is a step. And I guess in relation more generally to Australia's approach to international law and things like accountability, um, you know, we have seen a lot in the news at the moment that um, Australia is is now grappling with um, conduct of ADF soldiers, particularly in Afghanistan, where there's been allegations of war crimes. Um, the one that's been in the news a lot is the Ben Robert Smith case, who is a decorated um, soldier, and there is there are investigations into his um, alleged war crimes and um, killing of um, Afghans. So in that way, that is connected to the accountability work that I've done in on the Turkle Commission that was about implementing um, changes to the military justice system and putting in place all these mechanisms. We did see um, from that work that I was part of with the Turkle Commission that Israel did um, actually implement a lot of those recommendations. Um, to improve the military justice system and um, a lot of more about independence and transparency and trying to accord Israel's practice with international law obligations. But what um, we found, particularly after the 2014 conflict, and this is also about the work that I did on the Commission of Inquiry, was that um, Israel's record has shown that there is not a lot of confidence in the system. It doesn't actually lead to accountability. We saw with that conflict, 2014, there were 24 investigations, criminal investigations that resulted in three 
um, cases where Israeli soldiers were found to be um, responsible and they were all to do with um, looting and aiding and abetting looting. None were to do with um, killing Palestinians. And in relation to Australia, we can see that there's, you know, there's an awareness now because of Australian conduct um, overseas. Israel has had this ongoing problem because it's constantly been at war. And so what we saw in Israel was there was um, growing transparency that could have also been because of the watchful eye of the prosecutor of the ICC. So following the 2014 con conflict, there were constant updates that we should in English about the developments and the processes of all the investigations that were carried out. If we compare that to Australia, there is not a lot of transparency. We don't actually know um, what what's happening with that specific investigation. Um, so, you know, we can see that when you're involved in conflict, there's more of a need to be um, you know, aware of the international law obligations and in terms of accountability. So I think we'll see that more and more in Australia if it is more involved in war. But we're seeing kind of the beginnings of that. While talking about these macro issues, I think it's quite easy to forget that this all affects everyday people. I was wondering whether you could tell us a little bit more about some of the Israelis and Palestinians that you may have met during the course of your career and what the sentiment would be like at the moment within those communities? Yeah. So when I was at um, Bet Selem back in 2004, um, I was more in their office in Jerusalem, so I wasn't um, with their field workers on the ground, but obviously I had contacts with the field workers and all the information that they were bringing and I did used to volunteer during that time with an organisation called Mahsom Watch, which translates to called Checkpoint Watch, which is an organisation of Israeli women um, that go into the territories and try and use their maternal influence to um, watch over Israeli soldiers at checkpoints and try and get them to act humanely towards the Palestinians. And that was a really eye-opening experience, both in seeing Palestinians queuing up for hours in the in the sun to get through checkpoints and 19-year-old Israeli soldiers most of the time not really knowing what they're doing. Um, and that kind of gave, really showed me how a conflict like this can play out on the ground and affect people's day-to-day -day life. Um, in a terrible way, just access of movement, just trying to get to work, trying to get to school, things like that. Um, and I guess more recently with the Gaza Commission of Inquiry, unfortunately we didn't have access to go to Gaza. That was denied both by Egypt and by Israel. So we couldn't go in there on the ground and see what was happening, which did pose a challenge in terms of carrying out the report. All the interviews were done remotely by telephone um, as well as um, people that we could get out. We flew to Amman and we did have interviews with, with um, different kind of more influential figures rather than um, direct victims. 
so that gave me in, an insight into day-to-day life in Gaza in the sense that you could see who was prepared to be interviewed on the phone and the kinds of things they were willing to talk about and, uh, you know, the role of women a bit in society. Um, that was one of the focuses of the report, so we got a bit of an insight into that. But, again, it was difficult in the sense that it was all done remotely. Um, and I think on the Israeli side, uh, through my work on the um, Turkel Commission, which was a commission of inquiry that kind of tried to review the Israeli military justice system to and made recommendations so that it would um, adhere to international law obligations on accountability. Um, in that context, uh, there were a lot of interviews um, and submissions done by in the military uh, advocate general, so the legal side of the military. So that, again, gave a, a different perspective to one of the key players in this conflict. And as I said in the beginning, the NGO community in Israel, even though it's small, it's a very strong and important presence. And so I feel privileged to have connections with that community and see kind of close up through my ongoing contact with them the, the work that they're doing. And a lot of them do, are doing are working tirelessly right now, you know, in relation to the annexation to, to make Israeli citizens aware of what's going on, of, aware of the kind of impact that's going to have on Palestinians who are just... Um, so close to them. I mean, when you think about this region, it's actually, <laughs> it's tiny. Um, you know, the, the areas we're looking at that are being fought over <laughs> are very small, but, you know, you can just forget about the other side and go on with your day-to-day life. And that's why I think the NGOs are really important because they're a constant reminder about what is actually going on and how people's rights are being denied and violated. Thank you so much for speaking with me today, Michelle. It was great to get your expertise on what is usually a very complex conflict to understand. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for your great questions.